Well, a man named Howard Wasden had a dream. His dream was he wanted to become a Navy SEAL. Although he felt intimidated as he showed up for training, he looked around the room of trainees and he noticed just how strong and just how fit and just how able all of the other men in the room were. In fact, one man who he looked at had recently completed an Ironman triathlon. They were about to begin the fourth week of Navy SEAL basic conditioning. It's famous for its title, and the title of that week is Hell Week. It's the week when most of the people quit. It's five days and five nights of solid training with only four hours of sleep total for the whole week. We've got some pictures of Navy SEAL training we're going to put up on the screen for you. During this week, trainees are constantly in motion, constantly freezing cold, constantly starving hungry, and they are soaking wet all week long. And throughout Hell Week, instructors continually remind the candidates that they can quit at any time by simply ringing the shiny brass bell that hangs prominently within the camp for everyone to see. And you have to understand that instructors intentionally take physical strength out of the equation because they want to isolate the will. So all candidates are equally physically depleted, physically exhausted, physically miserable. Wasden said that it turns out the strongest men there were actually the biggest crybabies. Iron Man quit on day one. Once the body is empty, then the instructors begin the mind games. The instructors backed ambulances up to the beach and opened the back door of the ambulances and sat with blankets and hot chocolate, beckoning the men to come and quit and find warmth and comfort. Wasden himself was called over to the ambulance and an instructor actually put a cup of hot chocolate in his hands and said, just hold it for a little while. And as Wasden stood there freezing and shivering, he looked at that warm cup of hot, coffee, of, of hot chocolate, knowing that even one sip would mean that he would forfeit and quit. He looked at the blanket. He felt the hot air coming out. Wasden later said, handing back that cup of hot chocolate was the hardest thing I had ever done in my life. He didn't quit. Wasden went on to become an elite Navy SEAL sniper. He would survive the deadly Black Hawk Down incident in Somalia. He would never forget Hell Week. Last week, Elijah was on the mountaintop. He saw one of the greatest victories that had ever been seen over the worshipers of Baal in Israel's history. He saw the whole nation fall flat on its face in front of the Lord and cry out. He experienced the mountaintop, but this week, Elijah snaps. Something breaks inside of him, and he goes through hell. He goes through one of the worst days, one of the worst weeks, one of the worst months of his entire life, and he's tempted to quit. He's tempted to give up, to move on. He's consumed with disappointment, with discouragement, with depression, and this story's in the Bible because Christians, we will hit our breaking point. Christians' life will drive us past our natural capacity. And what then? What then when we feel like quitting? We've got nothing left and we feel like there's no hope. We feel like quitting our God, quitting our job, quitting our marriage, quitting our kids, quitting our life. And here we find Elijah with a story of faith. We're going to walk with him on the road he took into despair. 
We're going to meet him where he sat in despair and see how God lovingly talked to him. Then we're going to see how God got him back on the road to serving God's purpose. Basically, we're going to learn what faith looks like when hope runs out. And in two words, here's what God wants to communicate to you this morning. Don't quit. Let's pray. Father above, these heroes of the Old Testament that we've been learning from, they're just people. They're weak. They're needy. They're flawed. And I thank you that this story got into the Bible. I thank you that Elijah shows us what faith looks like when we've got nothing left. And Lord, I know that there are people in this room who've brought a broken heart to you. They've brought a broken life to you. They've brought a messed up marriage to you. They've brought, they've brought humanity to you. What do you say to them? Well, Lord, give us the hope and the encouragement that can be found in this story. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19 is where we're going to be. And this is week four we're spending with Elijah, the great prophet of God. Last week, he confronted the worshipers of Baal up on Mount Carmel and won a great victory. He had such high hopes that after he had spent three and a half years wandering in the wilderness, hiding because God turned off the rain, after three and a half years, he had such a vision of what would happen when he showed back up and God turned the rain back on. And it didn't play out the way he thought. Let's read what happens in chapter 19, verse 1. It says this, Ahab, who's Ahab? He's the what? He's the king. Is he a good king or a bad king? Two thumbs down. Zero stars. Okay. King Ahab told Jezebel, who's she? Okay, four thumbs down. I just added two extra thumbs to my body just for this purpose. Four thumbs down. Negative stars. One of the most awful queens ever. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. How he had killed all the prophets. Whose prophets were they? Jezebel's. They were hers. They were on her staff. She paid for them. She fed them. I would like to see this on like tape. Like Ahab comes home and he's like, hey babe. She's like, hey, anything go on today? Yeah, there was this thing on this mountain and all 850 of your prophets are dead. What? Elijah killed him. Why didn't you stop him? Ahab slept on the couch that night. The Bible doesn't record it, but I guarantee it happened. Jezebel was not happy. Verse 2, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. You're going to be in the ground by Friday, Elijah. You're dead tomorrow. Plans are already moving forward for your execution. Reading on, verse 3, then Elijah with the courage of a lion, stood up and declared that he would not be intimidated by... Ooh. I know you're like, that's not in my translation. Verse 3. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life. He came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Right now, he's all the way up north. Mount Carmel, all the way up north, northern border of Israel, and now he flees to the southernmost tip of the nation. He runs for his life. He leaves his servant there. This is his associate. This is his trainee. It's just 
leaves him there. Verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. I am no better than my father's. Jot this down. Here's the first thing we see in Elijah's life. I had a major internal breakdown. I had a major internal breakdown. We're tracing his steps on this path of faith, and he says, it's enough now, Lord, I'm done. It's enough. It's too much. He hit his breaking point. Do you know that you have a breaking point? Every one of us does. Have you hit it yet? Maybe not in your entire life, but have you hit it yet in any one area of your life where the natural capacity, the threshold of whatever sanity you have, you had it in your mind that there's a spectrum within which you could continue. But it's too much now. It's gone past what I could ever imagine. It's gotten worse than I ever thought. Check out this picture. This is a rope. This is a rope. It's tattered. It's shredding. It's coming unraveled. And, and this is like Elijah yesterday. He was just hanging on by a thread. Poor guy comes back from three and a half years in the wilderness. He's hungry. He's sad. And then, and then he just snaps. And that right there, I think, represents a lot of people in this room. Maybe your marriage is hanging on by a thread. Maybe as a parent, you're just... Maybe at your work, maybe in your faith with the Lord, there's just such a small thread that's still holding you together. And it's just a matter of time before you snap. Elijah snaps. He snaps. It got so bad, he says, take away my life, Lord. I'd rather die here alone than let her kill me. His prayer request, did you go to Sunday school where they had like the old dry erase boards and you can put your prayer request on the board? Remember that? Elijah's hand is up. Oh, 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 yes, Elijah. I'd like to die. Thank you. If you could just write that on the board, please. That's my prayer request for the day. I want the Lord to just take me out. Thank you. He's hit his breaking point. He's ready for it to be over. So he goes on this sanity walk, but here's the thing. Mount Carmel, Beersheba is 120 miles south. 120 miles. Then he goes another 250 miles, we'll read in a second, to Horeb, the mountain of God, which is, which is Mount Sinai. Takes a 370-mile walk, and he goes on a wandering route. Okay, have you ever gone on a sanity walk where you just need to leave your house for a little while? I mean, you just need to breathe, and you just need to walk. I've been on a sanity walk. been on several sanity walks. Elijah goes on a sanity walk. Forty days later, he's still walking. Like, like you could get from here to San Francisco in 40 days. Just keeps walking. He had a major internal breakdown. It says he walked a day into the wilderness and just found a tree and took a nap. Check out this picture. This is just, it's just in the middle of nowhere. Just That looks good. A good place for a nap. He laid down and he asked that God would take him out. He lost all hope. He lost all hope. He envisioned the whole nation turning around. He envisioned God solving all of his problems. And when God let his biggest problems remain, it was too much for him to bear. We learned something about God. We learned something about faith. 
We have to understand a few things here. First, Elijah survived the wasteland. Three and a half years he lived in the wilderness or with a widow, just moving around. He, that was fine. The wasteland, the wilderness. But now the, now the wilderness crashed into his own soul. You see, he was in a spiritual wasteland. He was bare and bone dry on the inside and he had nothing left. This was a different kind of trial. Different kind of famine. This is disillusionment with God. How could you let this happen? I've concluded it's too much. It's gone on too long. It's too heavy. It's too far. I'm done. You have to ask yourself this. God could have prevented this. Well, God does decide to do something. Let's read on a little bit. It says here in verse 5, And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. He looked. Behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. He arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Now you might be amazed by this, but I'm disturbed by this. Very disturbed by this. God's up in heaven watching this happen and he decides to do something. What does he decide to do? He decides to go down and not solve Elijah's problem. I would venture to guess that whatever it is in your life that's driving you to the breaking point, God could solve that problem with one text. If he sends you the text that tells you the future and how this thing's going to end or how it's going to get resolved or how he's going to use it, problem over. With Elijah, it would have taken two. Text one. King Ahab is going to die in battle. He's going to get shot between the shoulder blades. He's going to die even though he's not dressed up like a king because he's trying to hide. He'll die and dogs will lick up his blood. Text one. Text two. Jezebel is going to get pushed out of a window. She's going to slam on the ground, get run over by horses, and then eaten by dogs. They're not going to be able to find any part of her. Text two. I have a feeling if God sent Elijah those texts, he'd be like, i got to get some popcorn and watch this happen. This is going to be incredible the way God solves my biggest problems. But no. God lets the problems persist. He doesn't fix the problem. Go down and give him some food. What? Food? Why is God allowing these problems to continue? Because he wants to see me suffer. No, because he wants to see me grow. Because he wants to see me grow. You have to understand here, some preachers will stand up and tell you that if you walk by faith, God will make all your dreams come true. Okay, but that's not the Bible. And I'm going to tell you that if you walk by faith, you might see all of your fears come true. Okay? And there, as you hold the, the shards of broken dreams in your hand as they smashed on the ground and you're looking at your bloody palms wondering how on earth God could let things get this horrible, then you have to understand that when God sends a wrecking ball through your front window, it's because he's putting an addition on your faith. And Elijah snapped and got all messed up. And God wouldn't fix it. Wouldn't fix it. Elijah says here, I'm no better than my father's. Here's what it feels like when you're losing hope. It, he's losing confidence in God's ability to use him. I'm no good anymore. Whatever I was supposed to do, I failed. I'm a failure. I'm done. I'm out. You feel that way? Based on what has happened in my life, I'm useless to God. 
Do you know that the opposite is true, that your trials will make you more useful to God than ever before? I'm not good enough. I'm a failure. He's not just losing confidence in God's ability to use him. He's losing confidence in God's ability to sustain him. It's enough. It's too much. Too much for who? Say it. Too much for who? He's saying for God. God, I've weighed this trial and concluded that even for you, it's too heavy. I've done the research. He doesn't believe God's able to sustain him. He's losing confidence in God's ability to use him to sustain him and also to protect him. I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man. That's all there is to it. So he leaves his servant behind. He runs. And he's basically resigning. He's basically wanting to quit. I had a major internal breakdown. Now, the result of this is number two. Write this down. I went to a really bad place. I went to a really bad place. Yet God is showing in his mercy that he's willing and able to sustain him. He's showing that he's willing and able to sustain him. How? Well, first of all, throughout Elijah's life, God provided for him by raven, right, for years, bird delivery. He provided for him through a widow, and now an angel chef appears. An angel chef appears. I have a feeling this was like the day of this angel's life. Like, he's up in heaven, and God's like, all right, which of you likes to cook? Oh, oh, oh do I? All right, you're on. Get down there. Make some human food. I don't care. It's just got to sustain him. So this angel chef comes down and starts baking him a cake. <laughs> I picture the hat and the apron. Probably didn't wear it. In my mind, that's the way the story worked out. He made him this cake. And, okay, if you estimate that you need a couple thousand calories a day, you know, just to go. All right, 40 days it had to sustain him, just this one meal. So Elijah consumed an 80,000 calorie cake. That's one big cake. You may think that this type of meal does not exist, but I actually found online a cupcake that consumes 30, that contains 36,000 calories. Do you want to see it? You want to see it? Look, 36,000 calorie cupcake. It's called the Mayor Bloomberg Cupcake. It was made by a bakery for the mayor. Get this, it's got over 12 pounds of sugar, 5 pounds of butter, 4 pounds of flour, 6 cups of cocoa powder, 24 eggs, 2 cups of milk. Woo! How many of you want one of those, huh? You want one of those? Yeah, Elijah had two because he had about 80,000 calories and then he went on the go. Whatever that angel made, it sustained him. But in spite of God, in spite of God miraculously providing for him at his darkest moment, he still, off he goes, off he goes. He went to a really bad place. How will you get to a really bad place? If you follow in Elijah's footsteps, you'll get to a really bad place. Here's three things that I observed that he did. First, jot this down, get all alone. If you want to end up at a really bad place, get all alone, all by yourself, with no one else around. Run from church, run from small group, run from family, isolate yourself from all those around you, and you get all alone and then stew. This will lead you to a really bad place. Next, get negative. Get negative. Replay what hasn't happened over and over and over in your mind again. Rewind the tape and press play. Rewind the tape and press play. Guilt trip God by praying unanswered prayers over and over and over. 
And, and be sure that you keep meticulous records on how everyone else in your life is making you miserable. I mean, very good detailed records. Get alone and get negative. Uh, get sad. I've got, I've got some pictures here of kids who got sad. You want to see pictures of kids who got sad? Check this out. Here's kid number one who got very unhappy. Very negative. Here's the next one. Such a sad day. Such a negative place. Here's, here's the next one. These kids are not having the time of their life. <laughs> Smile. <laughs> but listen, isn't this what we do? Isn't this what we do when something breaks in us? We get all alone and what do we do? We get negative. Right? We just, in our, we just constantly, we, like rotisserie, over it goes, over and over. We just reheat the problem. Next, get forgetful. Get forgetful. Why? Well, because you can't be remembering all the amazing things God has already done in your life, right? And forget about his unbelievable promises that he's made because they will seriously interrupt your own discouragement. All right? So get alone, get negative, and get very forgetful, and you will end up at an awful place. And yet, even if you follow in Elijah's footsteps and you have a major internal breakdown and you allow it to drive you to a bad place, God here displays to us that he's willing to supernaturally hold us together and keep us from totally crumbling. I'm not saying an angel chef's going to appear in your kitchen and make you, a, you know, like a massive cupcake. I'm saying there are ways God has when you cross the threshold into the place where you are right. You don't have enough strength. You're right. You don't have enough patience. You're right. You can't make it through this. Saying at that moment, God has ways of supernaturally holding you together. Does that encourage you? Does that encourage you? The moment when you're wondering why he hasn't solved all of your problems. He's meeting your needs. Had a major internal breakdown. I went to a really bad place, but jot this down. God met me there. God met me there. Elijah ended up after 40 days and 40 nights at Horeb, the mountain of God. This is Sinai. We've got a picture. Go ahead and put the picture up of Sinai. This is where where Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt. And here, this is the mountain of God where uh, God shook the mountain and gave the Ten Commandments and met Moses in fire. And, And how long was it that Moses was up on that mountain? 40 days and 40 nights. This is almost God's way of renewing this, what happened here. He's going to renew what's going on in the life of Elijah, but here he is. This is where God meets him. Reading on in verse 9. It says, There he came to a cave and lodged in it. A cave. This is so symbolic. It's a portrait of where his heart is. He's in a cave of despair. He's in a cave, it's a dark, it's a lonely, it's a hard, it's an unhappy place. And he lived there. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? God meets him in his cave. Hey, listen, when you retreat into this place of despair, you feel like there's no hope. When you've snapped, God will meet you in that place. But here's the thing. He begins to surface what's going on in Elijah's heart. Penetrating question. Why are you here, Elijah? What are you doing here? 
He wants Elijah to assess how much of his misery is self-inflicted. Listen, what comes out of Elijah's mouth is going to teach you what keeps you in the cave. We've got to face this. Before God does anything, he first asks the question, what, what are you doing here? And as his heart surfaces, we're going to learn what keeps us in the cave. Well, well what does he say? He says in verse 10, he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Note what Elijah does. The first thing that comes out of his mouth is this. I'm not the problem. I'm not the problem. I've been jealous for you. I've done everything you asked me. I obeyed you. I risked my life for you. I confronted a king for you. I ate out of a bird's mouth for you. I drank from a creek for you. I raised the dead for you. I... He's giving his credentials of obedience. Why? To indict God and to tell God that Elijah feels he deserves better. I'm not the problem. I've been zealous. Hey, do you know if when you end up in a cave of despair, do you know that if, if you keep convincing yourself that I have nothing to do with the problem, the entirety of this problem exists outside of me, God's not going to be able to get you out. It's called self-pity. And nothing keeps you in the cave of despair like self-pity. Self-pity, self-pity is a sin. Do you know that? Why? Well, here's the definition of self-pity. It's the best one I read this week. Self-pity is when I feel like I'm being unfairly treated by life or people or fate or God. I feel like I'm being unfairly treated by life or people or fate or God. Therefore, at the heart of self-pity, this is huge. At the heart of self-pity is a fundamental objection to the sovereignty of God playing out in your life. Did you get that? The reason self-pity keeps you in the cave is because you disagree with God over the cause of your suffering, the duration of your suffering, the intensity of your suffering, and the solution to your suffering. Self-pity is pride. It's I know better than God how much suffering should be in my life. But here's the thing, it's not your common run-of-the-mill pride. It's not like pride like, hey, I'm all that, check this out. It's not that blatant. It's more subtle. It's disguised. Disguised in what? Self-pity is pride dipped in misfortune. And the misfortune masks the pride. And everything that I'm going through and everything that I'm suffering, the way that I'm telling it, I actually want to assemble worshipers around me who exalt me for my suffering. And I want to create this debt entitlement with all of those who, who are my devotees. And if they don't pay homage to my suffering, I have military-grade sadness that I will attack them with. You see how self-pity works? It's pride dipped in misfortune. Self-pity is self-destructive. 
And God wants this to surface in Elijah's heart because he can't get him out of the cave if he's cloaking himself in self-pity. Why do we complain? We complain because we believe God could be doing a far better job of directing our affairs. Hey, we need to let go of self-pity. We need to let it go because it's going to keep us in the cave longer than God wants us in there. I'm not the problem. I've been jealous for you. Elijah goes on to say, I could tell you who is the problem. I could give you a list of the people who've broken down your altars, violated your covenant, killed your prophets. Okay, so first Elijah's saying, I deserve better than this. Second, he's saying, they deserve worse. How come they get the rain? How come they get the crops growing again? How come they get your blessing on them? How come they get... This is called envy of the wicked. This is a sin too, and it's a very powerful gripping sin, and this envy will keep you in the cave. All right? If you look to those around you and you say, how come they got the raise? How come their kids are healthy? How come their marriage is still intact? How come after all he's done to me, he's not feeling like I'm feeling? I'm not the problem. I can tell you who is. I deserve better. They deserve worse. That's going to do nothing but imprison you in despair. And God surfaces this from it. What what are you doing here, Elijah? Stewing in self-pity. I'm stewing in envy of the wicked. And he goes on to say, I see no way out of my problem. They're going to kill me. And I'm the only one left. This is a portrait of how our problems can imprison us. I like what Bill Hybel says about this. He says a person is going along happily when suddenly he's hit with a big problem. Work-related, marital, family, relational, financial, spiritual, physical, whatever. His first reaction is to wonder, why me? Of all the billions of people on this planet, why did this problem hit me? He begins to moan and groan about the fact that he now has a problem. It's not just enough to feel badly about the situation. He's soon calling his friends to see if they will moan with him about his bad luck. He gets on his knees and tells God about the problem in vivid detail, as if God didn't know what was going on. He turns it over and over in his mind, eventually sending out formal invitations to a black tie pity party. Before he knows it, his whole life is revolving around his big problem. Paralysis sets in. He's chosen to let his problem define him. He can no longer either solve it or attend to business in any other area of his life. In the end, he is his problem. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I don't think of other people. I think of me. I think that's what I do. That's what I do. That's me. And God wants to meet us there. He wants to meet us there, but first he surfaces the attitudes that keep us there. Once the attitude is surfaced, let's read on to what happens next. Verse 11, and he said, God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. This is awesome. And a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke it to pieces. The rocks before the Lord. This is amazing. It's a giant tornado that comes through. It's cracking the mountains, throwing boulders. <sighs> Can you imagine? It's like as loud as a locomotive. Things are flying past the entrance of that cave that could take this guy out. But then it says, but the Lord was not in the wind. God did that, but God wanted to put some distance between his presence and that. He wanted Elijah to see him hurl a boulder across the mountain, but he wanted Elijah to see God wasn't in there. Then it says, after the wind, an earthquake. You know God's strong enough to where the, the giant, huge tectonic plates that actually are the foundation of your world and your house and your freeway and everywhere that you walk throughout a day, God could take it and shake it with his arm. 
He could shake the very ground that our entire city and state is. He could shake it if he wants to. He's that strong. And yet, the Lord was not in the earthquake. Verse 12, and after the earthquake, a fire. I I picture this blazing inferno, a huge forest fire without a forest that just comes roaring through. And and Elijah's feeling like he's in an oven. His face is burning and he can't even look at it because it's so bright. This massive fire passes by. But God was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. The sound of a low whisper. We're learning something about God here. Yeah, Elijah, I can alter the landscape of your entire life. I can send something so loud and powerful. I can send something so hot. I could send something so strong. I could visibly alter the landscape of anything in your world. I control it all. And in showing his size and his strength, God is sending a message into that cave that I'm perfectly capable of controlling all the chaos in your life. But that's not the way I'm going to do it. And then there was this whisper, this like he could barely hear it. Couldn't even hear what it just come. Just heard this whisper. And it was quiet. And after all that noise in this quiet moment, God showed Isaiah that it's not with your eyes that you're going to see what I'm doing. You're not going to see it. You're going to hear my voice. God's not concerned with the eyes. He's not going to show it to you. He wants your ears to be open to his voice. And there's a battle going on for Elijah's ears. Jezebel's talking to him. God's talking to him. And Elijah's talking to himself. Jezebel's saying, you're going to die. God's saying, you're going to live. Elijah's saying, there's no hope. And the truth is, when you're in the cave of despair and God wants to meet you there, he's not going to go after your eyes. He's not going to show you the future. He's not going to show you his plan. He's going to go after your ears and try and get his voice to be the one you're hearing. This leads us to the fourth point. Walking this journey, we see that Elijah had a major internal breakdown. You will. I will. Went to a really bad place because he got all alone, got negative, and got forgetful. God met him there, but here's the fourth thing. I emerged from the cave by faith. I emerged from the cave by faith. In verse 13, it says, And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in the cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Behold, there came a voice to him, And said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Okay, he gets a second chance at this question. Now listen, if you're in a class and a teacher collects the tests and looks at yours and brings it back and says, hey, you're going to want to take another look at question number 13. Are you going to look back and say, no, I'm happy with the answer I wrote. You're going to be like, re-answer, right? Not Elijah. 
This just shows how hardened he is and how his heart is so broken. It says here, same answer, verse 14. I've been very jealous for the Lord. Not my fault, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. I can tell you who's the problem. Thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. There's no hope. And the Lord said to him, God's still talking to him. This is so encouraging to me. This is so encouraging to me. He's on the run. He's losing hope. His faith is shattered. And God is being so gentle and soft and kind in the way he's speaking into this cave. He's being just so loving and so measured and so patient. Elijah gives the same answer again. And God keeps talking to him get you out of here. You've got to listen to me. I'm going to get you out of here, but you've got to listen to me. I love how God treats him. I emerged from the cave by faith. God goes on to say this. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Now Damascus was way northeast, so like he's a I mean, he's all the way down now, you know, like near the Red Sea, like where Moses took the Israelites. Now he's got to go all the way back up through Israel and into Syria where Damascus is. This is a long trip. Go all the way back. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. Hey, hey, go to a nation that's not even your nation, and I'm going to put a new ruler there. You just need to tell him. And Jehu, the son of Nimshai, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. Hey, uh, your country's getting a new king. I just need you to let him know. Do you just go let him know? And you shall anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahola. You shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Hey, you know, you know that like, you know that like feeling like you're alone? I got another guy. You're going to raise up the next generation of prophets. Once you're gone, I'm going to still be hard at work. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Hey, you know the math you're doing about how many people are still left serving me? Your math is way off. I'm doing a much better job of keeping track of the stats. I saw your report card. Your math grades were awful. Leave the calculations to me. Oh, and your enemies? You have nothing to be afraid of. I know where all of them are. They've got nowhere to run. They've got nowhere to hide. They're completely under my control. God removed the base and the foundation for all of his complaints. The next generation of prophetic witnesses is going to turn the hearts of Israel. I got your enemies covered. I'm powerful enough to change the entire political and religious landscape of your life. All I need you to do is be my newsboy. Wow. Yet this was a crisis of faith. Elijah could have stayed in his cave and stewed. He could have gone back in and sat down and just said, no, I'm done, I'm out, no hope. And to get up and to go back took faith. And the truth is, Elijah's story ends on a very positive note. He goes back. 
he actually gets to see some of the most amazing military victories in the history of Israel. 120,000 troops come against the Israelites with like 32 kings all together. They get slaughtered. He actually gets to see King Ahab express a measure of repentance. It's so moving to see his greatest enemy, or maybe his second greatest enemy, actually move to repentance. God is so moved by it, he delays some of this judgment. It's astonishing. He gets to see the death of Ahab. He gets to raise up the next generation of prophets in Elisha, gets them ready. And then in the end, God decides not to answer Elijah's prayer to kill him in the desert. But God gives him one of the most spectacular, amazing, honorable ends in the Bible, probably second only to the Lord Jesus Christ. Elijah doesn't die. He's walking with Elisha one day, and these bright, loud, sweeping chariots of fire come down, and there's horses, and picks him up and whirls him up into heaven in a firestorm. His cloak is the only thing that comes back down, and Elisha picks it up and looks up and understands that it's his job to carry the torch. He's only one of two people who just didn't die in the Old Testament, Enoch and Elijah. Did Elijah know that was going to happen? Did he know the amazing plans God has for his future? Plans for his death? Plans for the way he would take it? He didn't know any of that when he was all broken to pieces. But he did turn around and go back by faith. Because of that, God's purposes were fulfilled for his life. Hey, let me ask you this at the end of this message. Is it time for you, by faith, to come out of that cave of despair? Is it time for you by faith to allow the Lord's voice to be the one voice you're listening to? Is it time by faith to allow the loving, kind, gentle, soft admonition of God to begin helping you move forward again? Is it time by faith to head back toward His people again? Is it time by faith to believe that the plans that He has for your future far surpass anything you could ever possibly imagine? Is it time by faith to believe that he allowed this into your life for a purpose? He'll use it. He'll bless it. And the day will come when it will be over. God wants to meet you wherever you are, to speak lovingly to you and gently to you. Whatever it is you're going through, wherever you're at, he wants you to not quit. He wants you to walk by faith. Let's just close our eyes here and take a moment Let's just close our eyes here between you and the God who loves you to turn our hearts toward Him. And in response to this, to bring before Him anything, anything that's going on in our life that's causing us to reach that threshold. Whatever it is that's heavy, whatever it is that's difficult, whatever it is that's burdening us or breaking us or... Now is the time right here as you close your eyes, as you bow your heart to turn toward the Lord. And I want you right now to just talk to Him in the quiet of your own heart about whatever it is that's breaking you. Now's the time to surface you in your heart. 
whatever attitudes that you've been clinging to that have been keeping you in that cave, this is the time to repent of self-pity, of pride, of blame. Now's the time to ask the Lord for great things in your future. For impossible things. Father in heaven, I thank you you are near to the brokenhearted. Thank you that you talked so lovingly toward Elijah. I thank you that you've promised us your abiding presence. I thank you, Lord, that even when we've crossed our breaking point, you are there holding us together, sustaining us, meeting our needs even when you won't solve our problems. Increase our faith, Lord. Jesus, I remember your promise. I will be with you always to the end of the age. Thank you, Lord, that you are a risen and exalted king. You went up to heaven and you were seated at the right hand of God the Father. And now you can intercede for anything we're going through. You suffered, making you a perfect mediator between us and God the Father. You offer help in our time of need. I pray that we would find it here. We pray this in Jesus' name.